Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, with Pastor John King. Thank you, Pastor John. Good morning, everybody. Um, today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Some of you go, wait a minute, weren't we there about uh, eight weeks ago in the middle of the summer? And that, that is true. And, uh, you know, I talked it over with our assistant pastor, Pastor John, who brought that message. And he encouraged me to go ahead and give it again. He, tra- he taught the last time, so I'm going to teach this time. Uh, and let's just see if, if the Word of God is true and that it's fresh every time. Uh, the reason we want to continue uh, teaching it is it kind of bridges together where we're going in the book of Ephesians. And it's kind of difficult to leave this part out. So maybe you don't need to take notes today. Maybe it's just a time to listen. But uh, I do want to recognize that, yes, we did. uh, Pastor John did a great job teaching it uh, two months ago. So uh, we're going to go through it again. So a little review for for all of us. Um, Last week, we we were finished up first, uh, excuse me, chapter 1. We finished uh, the second half of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And the whole thing, the big message that hopefully you took away from last week was that he is teaching the Ephesian church and Paul is teaching us to recognize the surpassing greatness of God's power toward you. You know, God's power is coming toward you. And we saw four ways that it could be sensed, how you can pick up on God's power. We said, we sang the song, your name is power, you know, the thing about it. And God's power can be made known, of course, through what we talked about earlier, and that's prayer, intercessory prayer. And Paul, you know, he came to this church, or he heard of this church and their faith. He had previously spent two years with them, and he was overjoyed with the fact that they had solid faith and that they loved one another. So the fruit of their belief was, was true. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a message to a church that had lots of problems. But Paul kind of starts to go deeper in our understanding about God's greatness of his, his power towards us. And he also said that power is connected to knowing the person of God. You've got to have a real relationship with Jesus. You've got to have a real true relationship with God to understand God's power. Uh, but there's a lot of people who don't know God and they think they do. They have, you know, head knowledge. And so Paul prayed that they would, in knowing God, that they would have deeper wisdom and understanding. And, and of course, revelation. So if you don't know God, you're not going to have those kind of things. God's not going to speak to you through his word the way he does to a believer. We also notice that God's power is connected to knowing the promises of God. You know, we, if we live by circumstances and we live by how the wind blows in our world, and maybe today it's going good and maybe tomorrow it won't be so good, we're, you know, we go up and down in life. But if we live by the promises of God, we have a, a more steady, uh, not without storms, not without challenges, but we have a much more grounded outlook on this life, this temporary life that we have in the world today. And finally, we said God's power is, is connected to understanding the preeminence of Christ. You know, Jesus Christ will be, is above all things. We say it, he's in control of all things. But there's a fuller manifestation to come. When Jesus Christ will sit above all the heavens, the earth, and the universe, and all of creation will then be under his dominion and his power. 
We see now we live in a fallen world and the world does its thing. I'm going to talk about that today. But there will come a time. And guess what? We have a seat with him in this position of authority and power. And we'll, we'll see that as well today. So this week, Paul reminds the church of who they were before salvation. As Pastor John said in his teaching, you know, it starts with the bad news, and then it, we get to the good news. We always want the bad news first. You know, spare me, the, spare me the good news for now. I just need to know how bad it is. And so we're going to see that. First, you're going to see that then prior to your life in Christ, before salvation, you were dead spiritually. You were under control of the world, you were under the control of the devil, and you were under control of your own fleshly desires. But now, you and I in Christ are alive spiritually. By his mercy, we've been raised by the power of his resurrection. And as we said, in God's eyes, you're seated together with him right now, even in the highest of places. And then our future, uh, our future uh, thing that we look forward to, all the eternal ages, uh, this is going to be a, a one long praise song. One long testimony once we get to heaven about what God has done and all the things that he's done. We won't get tired of seeing his glory on display through his son Jesus. So let's read our passage once again, verses 15 through 20, excuse me, verses 1 through 10. Today we're in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. He says, And he, or excuse me, and you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you that you've given this time for us, we've, we've been able to set this time aside for a special work that you always want to do in our hearts when we gather, when your word is, is taught, when there's praise and worship, when there's prayer. You have a special time for us, Lord. And for many of us, it's a time that we look forward to each and every week. Even though we know we can commune with you one-on-one -on -one in our private time, which is so essential and so precious, there's something special as well about our gathering together corporately. And so, Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to do so. We have a place to meet. And, Lord, you have a purpose and a plan for our lives, for all of eternity. So go before us now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So once upon a time, 
If you're not a believer, if you, don't, if you didn't, or excuse me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I, I, I'm <laughs> sorry, folks. If you're a Christian, once upon a time, you have to remember that you walked on a deadly path. You walked a deadly path. And you know, that's, that's not just some people. Paul, Paul covers all the people, the Gentiles and even the Jews. He's speaking as a Jew. Every person born on the face of the earth is born dead in sin, dead in trespasses. That's just a fact of life. That's a spiritual truth. That's a reality. And it's a hard reality sometimes. It's, it can be a very depressing thought, to be quite honest. But he starts out, he says, even though once upon a time you walked a deadly path, he says, addressing the church at the, uh, in Ephesus, he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins. So right away, even though it's bad news, it's also good news. Um, the and you is from the original text, but the word he made alive is either in italics or it's you know, bracketed. And the reason for that is because it wasn't in the, the original text. And so you'll see that in the King James and the New King James, but a lot of your modern translators leave it out. But why would the early translators think to put or add this phrase to highlight God's great power towards them? Well, it's that very same reason. Because whoever was the copyist, whoever was writing those things, wanted people to understand right off the bat that he made them alive. They wanted to highlight that great power. <clears throat> he says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, we learned from our previous study that that word dead means necros. And it's being used as a metaphor for somebody who is spiritually dead. Uh, dead in trespass, dead in what? Well, trespasses and sins, those are just kind of, uh, if you will, different versions of sin. If you want to boil it down, trespasses is a sin. And, you know, we can get into the, uh, to the, the definition of that, but it's really not important. Both of the words in the Greek describe the evil that characterizes a person's life that is separated from God. In other words, dead in a spiritual sense. One writer put it this way, he said, For those created in God's image, death or necros does not mean extinction or non-existence or annihilation. That's not what it means. It means separation. Everybody who dies goes somewhere eventually and for all of eternity is the separation of a person from the purpose or use for which he was intended. There's one way to say it. You see, man was created to know and to fellowship and to worship and serve God. That was the original purpose of God's creation, to have fellowship with God, to serve him. But man, since the fall, man does not do it. If he worships at all, he, you know, he worships his own ideas. He has his own agenda. You notice how people, everybody has an agenda, right? Sometimes the agenda is very obvious, and sometimes it's, it's kind of hidden. It's kind of sneaky. We have sneaky agendas sometimes, too. You know, we sneak down to get a little midnight snack. That kind of thing. Sneaky agenda. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can't sleep? Go to the refrigerator. But we worship our own ideas. We worship our own concepts of God. We create a God to suit our own needs. We create a false idol. We create a God to, to be in our image. And that's against the, the first of the Ten Commandments. 
And you know what? God will allow you to live and, and, and do this. God gives you the free will to do that. Now, the Bible speaks to us about three types of death. You have physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death, most familiar with what anybody would call death. A person ceases to exist on earth and is laid to rest in a grave where they're cremated. Biblically speaking, it is a separation of a person's eternal soul from their body. Separation, but not annihilation. Hebrews 9.27, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So that's the physical death. Can somebody please close those doors? Thank you. You have the spiritual death. Separation of a man from God while he is still living and walking on the earth. And that's what we're talking about today, the spiritual death. And this is the natural state of man on earth without Jesus Christ. Man is still seen as in his sins and dead to God. What does it look like? It's a wasted life. It's a life living in continuous sin. It's a life that has not come to Christ. It could be a person who is very moral and religious. They could be very talented. They can be even kind and self-sacrificing. But apart from God, they're spiritually dead. They're alienated from God. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so we have physical, we have spiritual death, and of course we have eternal death. This is separation of a person from God's presence forever, for all of eternity. The Bible calls this the second death, Revelation 2.11 and 21.8. This is uh, eternal separation from God that is prolonged beyond physical death into eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 These shall be punished with everlasting, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So death means separation. Whether it's from your loved ones, whether it's spiritually dead and separated from God in your sins, or whether it's eternally dead. Now Paul breaks this condition down into a finer detail. And he's going to list for us three forces that assist and encourage a person towards disobedience to God. And they are familiar. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Or our sinful nature. And he says in verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world, that's the, it's like the cycle of the present evil age, if you will. Galatians 1.4 says you walked in the ways of the world. This course is, is, the Greek word is aeon. It's the cultural wind. It's the mindset and the practices of the world. And they're very apparent in our day. You know, culture, just like it's always been, is very strong. It's very powerful. Whether it's peer pressure on kids growing up, uh, coming against their values that are being taught in their home and in the church uh, that they encounter in the world. Whether it's the battle, you know, of, of the cyber, you know, the, the computers and the flat screen, the social media, which you hear me mention quite often. 
These are the ways of the world and the things that are going on. And you can tell how much time you're spending taking in all of that at the expense of how much time you spend taking in God's Word. You can tell it in yourself. You start to become more concerned about the world that we live in here than God, you know, God's plan for your life. Hughes wrote this, he said, those without Christ are captive to the social and value system of the present evil age, which is hostile to Christ. In fact, they are willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the group think of the talk shows, post-Christian mores, and man-centered religious fads. The spiritually dead are dominated by the world. And so Paul's reminding these Ephesians, and he's reminding himself that that's the way they once were. And so if you've had a conversion to Jesus Christ, perhaps as an adult, perhaps you lived a life in the world, and you've experienced the world and its power on your life. But God's delivered you. You can see that there's a stark difference. But oftentimes, it's kind of a slow descent, isn't it? We slowly start taking in more of the world and less and less of the things of God. So you have the world, and then, you, of course, you have the devil. Everybody knows who the devil is, right? It's a, it, you know, he's, a, he's a character. He's a, a caricature of many things. But according, he says here, that he's now he, he's labeled by Paul. Uh, he says that you walked according to the course of this world, and he says, according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. In other words, you not only walked under the course of this world and society and culture, but you also walked under the influence of Satan, who is the influencer of all those things worldly. The prince, a ruler, a prince over evil spirits in a heavenly domain, which we cannot presently see. But you can surely feel his presence. And in some places, much more than others. The power of the air, uh, one writer said, many people in the ancient Near East believed that the air, the sphere between heaven and earth, was the residence of evil spirits. And so that's kind of the context why Paul is referring to the prince over the power of the air. Now when we get to chapter 6 in our study at the end of the, uh, this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to be going much further into this heavenly realm of spiritual forces and principalities and powers which wage war against believers. You see, the, world, the people, the, the, not just humanity, but the church is being attacked by the enemy. And then we'll, we'll learn why we need to have spiritual armor to be defended from the fiery darts of the wicked one and the evil one. We're going to go into that much further. He says, this prince of the power of the air uh, is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Disobedience means obstinate and actually energized to go against God's will by your actions, by your body language, by your attitude. But we know, you see, that's the thing. We know that his days are numbered. John twelve thirty one. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We know that. The enemy from God. This is because 
This is, this is why he had, how can he, how can he have this influence? Because the spiritual world, which you and I cannot see, has access to our world. Modern science will tell you there's no such thing as spiritual. There's no spiritual world out there. But the Bible tells us quite the opposite, and our experience as well. The spiritual world world has access to this world and offers us the sinful temptations that our flesh is ready to receive. The Bible is clear that if a person is not a child of God, he is the child of the devil. You know, there you go. That hard teaching that we sometimes encounter in God's word. 1 John 3.10, Jesus said in this, excuse me, John wrote, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So again, you know, the two commandments sort of coming together right there. Obedience to God, loving the Lord and being obedient to him and loving others. How Jesus simply boiled it down to those two simple commandments. And we know, as we said, that he also works very hard to influence Christians, this devil, this Satan, But we have been given the power and the authority to resist him. Not only do we know that his days are numbered, but you and I have been given the power by God. You know, God's power, God's authority to resist him. James 4, 7, he simply says it this way. And it's this simple. We don't need to make it complicated and spooky and weird when we're talking about spiritual forces. Don't do that. Don't try to have prayer conversations with demons and Satan. I would not advise that. Jesus goes before you. In fact, James says, therefore, submit to God. And he says, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. It's that simple. And you should be experiencing that because you have, if you believe the power and the authority that you have from God. Now, there are places in the world where demonic activity is very intense. And it manifests itself in things that most of us would never see. If you talk to a missionary from Africa or maybe a missionary from Haiti, you'll hear the stories, and that's just a few places, of how evil manifests itself through witchcraft. But our society, you know, the devil's smart, so he uses all the other stuff to get to us, right? He doesn't need to freak us out with a bunch of human sacrifices and such as that. Because we'll sacrifice ourselves on the altar of, of, of fame or the altar of, uh, you know, prosperity. We'll sacrifice ourselves in those altars, and Satan will have complete control over us. Pride. The third enemy is the flesh. Yeah, it's you. If you you had a mirror, you could be looking at yourself, and you could know that within you lies this person uh, who is controlled and influenced by its own uh, selfish and fleshly desires. Verse 3, he says, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Now here Paul, he's already been talking to predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus, but he's not going to leave out the Jews. You know, the most religious people on the face of the earth at that time. They, would, they had, you know, how many laws? And they would, you know, Jesus said, you'll squeeze out a gnat. You'll tithe. I mean, that, you'll, you're, you're that t- tight in your religion. He says also we. So he includes all everybody. All of humanity, as we said in the beginning, shares in the condition of spiritual death apart from Christ. He says you fulfilled the desires of your flesh. You, you live to satisfy your fallen nature. 
That was, that was your purpose in life, was to satisfy your fleshly desires. Yeah, you can cover it up and make it look good and look good in front of others. You can do benevolence, you can virtue signal and all that. I'm a good person, whatever. But if you're not in Christ, you know, that's just a facade. That's what people see. It's not what your family sees, those who know you the most. It's not what God sees. He says, you were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now, you may have heard the story of a little girl who was being disciplined by her mother for kicking her brother in the shins and then pulling his hair. You know, bang, bang. Sally said to her mother, or excuse me, Sally said her mother, why did you let the devil kick your little brother and pull his hair? Which she answered, well, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my own idea. (laughs) So people are under the devil's influence, of course, but we also sin on our own. For those of you Bible scholars and students, those of you who may be in seminary, this is what we're talking about is the doctrine of human depravity. This is the doctrine of human depravity. In Romans, or chapters 1 through 3, Paul dedicates three entire chapters of the book of Romans to talk about this doctrine of human depravity. And then here in Ephesians, he sums it all up in three verses that we just covered. But some questions come on. You know, whenever you talk about this doctrine of depravity, questions naturally come up. One of the reasons why is because there's, there's dispute among theologians about this doctrine. And we're not going to get into all that, but there's a few questions that you might ha- ask. And it would be natural to ask these questions. If this doctrine of human depravity, you know, being what we've just said, it's obvious apart from Christ, you're fallen Every part of your nature is being touched by sin. Does that mean we're all equally depraved? And it's an answer that's quite obviously no. We have the potential to be as wicked as a mass murderer. You and I, apart from Christ, have the potential to be as wicked as a Hitler, a Stalin. We have the potential within us. The depths of the depravity goes deep in some people more than others. We can indeed sink lower and lower. And I've heard so many testimonies about it, about depravity, whether it's a, 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 you know, a quick dive into depravity, which is very rare, but that slow and steady downward spiral in your life apart from God. And you know, the only thing that's stopping you perhaps from being a vile and wicked person is the laws of the land that you live in. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the influence of the church. That could be easily be somebody's testimony, even in here, of where you once were, apart from Christ, before he rescued you. Before he stood you on a solid rock of faith. Does it mean that we're totally incapable of doing good? And this is where a lot of the argument comes in. Are we totally incapable of doing any good whatsoever? Well, not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. Luke 6.33, he says, And if you do good 
To those who do good to you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. So yes, people have the ability apart from God to do good things. Luke eleven thirteen, and then he says, If you then, in reality, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So yes, people are poss- it's possible for people to do good works. So you have to be careful with this doctrine. You really do. But you, you can't come away with the thought that you got it all together, with the thought that apart from God, you are a good person, because it never works. The good person test, you will fail every time. Why? All you have to do is look at the Ten Commandments. Have you kept them all? I mean, did you get past the first one? You know, what if, what if you thought? I mean, you know, again... But you want to ask another question, and I think it's good to ask, what about human dignity? Because, you know, sometimes we, we, we describe the human person as like just, just so, simply a monster. And in so many ways, we are monsters. When we see the depravity manifest itself in those various levels. And you wonder how things can get that bad. But what about human dignity? You know, we're not totally absent. Uh, Hughes writes this. He said, he, man, men and women, we're an imperfect bearer of the divine image. You know, God made us in his image and in his likeness, and that was good. But the meaning is that no part of a human being, our mind, our emotions, our heart, and our will, is unaffected by the fall. That's for sure. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, The lost sinner lives to please the desires of the flesh and the wishes of the mind. That's a literal translation. His actions are sinful because his appetites are sinful. When you apply the word depraved to an unsaved person, you are not saying that he only does evil or that he is incapable of doing good, what we just talked about. You are simply saying that he is incapable of doing anything to merit salvation or to meet the high standards of God's holiness. It's impossible. It can't be done. The natives on Malta who kindly assisted Paul's and his friends after the shipwreck, they certainly did good works, but they still needed the gospel. They still needed to be saved, which Paul did, talks about in Acts 28, 1 and 2. David Guzik wrote, Because of our surrender to the old man, our flesh, the world and the devil, these things that we're talking about, we were by nature children of wrath. And we rightly deserved God's wrath. You have to get your hands around it. You've got to realize it. You can't say, but, I, but, but, but. No, there's no but. There's only but God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We rightfully deserve God's wrath and we deserved it because of who we are by our heritage. We inherited the sins of Adam. The Bible knows nothing of the idea that all men are children of God. You'll see that in, that, in a humanist attempt to try and you know, bring the world together. You know, we are the world, we are the children, you know, all this kind of stuff. Except in the sense that he is our common creator, and we talked about that. We were all made in his image. 
but God. So we move to that. We move from those first three verses, hopefully uh, another review of just how uh, desperately in need of salvation a person is because of their spiritual death. They need to be rescued. Now we come to where God comes into the picture. It says, but God, you were made alive in Christ. Now, Paul, having explained that every soul outside of Christ is in in sort of this death valley, as one writer put it, the lowest place. Because every part of human nature is depraved, he now gets to declare the good news that because of God's great love for us, we have been made alive and spiritually raised to the highest places. So from the lowest depths of depravity as a person, spiritual death, to the highest places above all of the heavens. And I mentioned last week, now our world has the technology to see the James Webb telescope pictures of the universe and all those galaxies and all that amazing stuff. We're higher than that. We are more value than all of that in God's eyes. We, the church. Because that's where heaven is. That's the, those are the heavenly places above all of creation. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us. Now, being rich is mercy. God is the source. This is an essential quality of God. An essential quality of God, and that is his mercy. His mercy towards us. In fact, not only is it an essential quality, he is rich. He is abounding in it, okay? He has great plenty in kindness towards us while we're in our spiritually dead state. His mercy is rich and abounding, coming towards the person, coming towards the sinner who he seeks. This is the goodness of God. We sing that song, I have you know, been, I have seen all my life, you've been faithful, and I've lived to see the goodness of God. This is what we're talking about. His rich mercy that comes upon us. And his love. It says here, because of his great love with which he loved us. In other words, who God is and his prevailing attitude towards us. His attitude towards us is an attitude of mercy and love. And Paul doesn't spare the Greek words, you know, great Strong, intense, this great love, agape. He loved us, agapeo. You know, so great love, he loved us, with which he loved us. The the noun and the verb tense. Agapeo means he longs for you, and he welcomes you with desire. That's his heart. Those are the essential characteristics of God. One One of the essential characteristics of God, the Father. And so even when we were dead in trespass, you know, that condition we were born into this world, he said he made us alive together. You know, he's talking about the stunning reality of your spiritual resurrection. The stunning reality of it. Even when you were spiritually dead and nothing could, take, nothing could change that apart from God, but God. All by his grace. A perfect expression, if you will, of God's love for us. He's made us alive together in Christ. You have a new moral life. When you and I were dead in our sins, we were were depraved in every area of our life. 
But having been made alive, his life now touches every area of our life, of our mind, our will, our emotions, and our heart. He touches it. And yes, we're still a work in progress. We're still being sanctified. He says in parentheses, by grace you've been saved. He wants to make sure you get that. You know, in case you fall asleep reading this passage. No, I don't know. You know not that. He wants you to understand that. Because he's going to say it again. The basis of salvation is grace. It's God's undeserved generosity towards people. God demonstrated his grace through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection. But now, notice in verse 6, not only have you been raised with Christ, you're in Christ and resurrected, but you're also ascended. You're ascended Christ. He says, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. And we, we, we talk mainly about our resurrection, the fact that we have a new life and a new walk here on earth, but we tend to leave out the fact that spiritually he's raised us to this place. He's trying to broaden our horizon of understanding. He's trying to help us understand as our salvation is unfolding in reality in our hearts and minds. You see, being washed with the word and having your mind renewed and just washing out the stuff that the world pours into us that we open up the door for. He wants us to see that. And if you concentrated on those things, uh, you know, you, you would have a much easier time in life. I would have a much easier time in life. But instead, I have a tendency to let things get under my skin. I let things in that I shouldn't. The influence of the world. But if I stay focused on this, it changes the whole picture. The whole sight picture, if you will. He raised us up, resurrected life. We're no longer subject to spiritual death. And he made us to sit together. Jesus sits in a place of exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We get to share in that, not his exaltation and not in his position directly. But we have a seat in heaven. The resurrection power that raised Christ from the, get, from the dead is the same power that a Christian experiences when they're saved. See, the power of God, it, it encompasses all things. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, we saw it last week. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That same power that raised Christ from the grave, we experience when we become Christians, when we become born again. And you say, well, if resurrection power has the same power that raises us to the heights of heaven, you say, well, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm still feeling the effects of gravity, okay? I'm still here on earth. I still feel all this going on. And that's the truth. But just as you were once spiritually dead, and you were walking around in the course of this world, your body wasn't dead, you were spiritually dead. When you were raised to life and made spiritually alive, you became, spiritually, spiritually speaking, inhabitants of heaven. And one of the reasons why our new life bears fruit 
As we await our bodily resurrection, whether it's through death and, and raised or whether it's through the rapture, you know, if we're alive at that time, one of the reasons why that we're bearing fruit now is because the reality of that future that we're guaranteed to have, that we presently possess spiritually, has touched us. You know, this, this whole thing about Christianity, it, it tends to be a mystery because you just can't necessarily understand, you just don't know for sure why you do the things that you do. But you know that you have to do them. You know that you want to please the Lord. You know that He's real. And so, you know, it's hard for Christians to explain that to people. What are you talking about? And the, the best thing we can do is continue each and every day to be obedient to God, to read our Bibles, and to pray. And as we grow in the Lord, it becomes grounded in us. It becomes a part of us that cannot be taken away. Finally, we look at the end of our today's uh, message, a final part portion of it. The purpose for this wonderful spiritual resurrection, what is it? And really, it's, it's going to be a never-ending testimony to God's grace and God's glory. That's what it's going to be. So far, Paul has taken us from the death valley of the soul, quote, uh, the condition of man apart from God, to where in God's sovereignty is, he has made available by His grace, the opportunity to respond to the witness of the Holy Spirit and to become Christians. And as a result, you've been raised from your spiritual death to walk in the newness of life here and now, as well as life in the heavenly places. What's the purpose? You know, it's almost like, uh, and one writer put it this way, he was talking about a mountain climbing expedition that he took out in California, where you could go on that, what's the highest mountain in Southern California? It's the highest mountain in North? Whitney. Mount Whitney. Uh, writer uh, Hughes, he talks about going to Mount Whitney. And from Mount Whitney, it's 14,000 some odd feet. You can actually see Death Valley, the lowest part of it. So you can, you can stand in the highest part of our North of, of the United States anyway, uh, lower 48, I think, and look at the lowest part of the, of the thing from that mountain. So you can see both. But it's like Paul has taken us on a spiritual mountain climbing excursion, right? Starting from the lowest depths of depravity to the highest level of existence. You know, that, that, I, I can relate to that because I used to, when I was in Alaska, we used to go climbing. And I know what it's like to climb, you know, it's very grueling, you know, winter climbing sometimes. And you break through the clouds and it's beautiful sunshine and you can see, you know, half of Kodiak Island. And it's just gorgeous. And all you do, is you just kind of gaze off and just go, wow, that's incredible. That's what you do when you get in these place, certain places like that. And so for you and I, I think what Paul wants us to do, if you're a Christian, having been brought into these things, and that's why chapter one ties so closely with this part of chapter two is giving you that, you know, trying to get us to understand in our mind where we truly sit. And so as you and I gaze off into thoughts of eternal life in heaven, that's the goal, he sums it all up. He sums it all up here in these last three verses. He says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The future age. Now, we used that word age earlier, uh, speaking of the present, the world. But now we're talking about the future age. The age after the return of Christ in His majesty. It's going to be a period of consummate establish of His divine kingdom and all of its blessings. 
And our minds have a hard time wrapping around that. So we're trying to get a glimpse of that. And the reason why you, you can sit and look over this vast... I mean, imagine look, sitting in the heavens and actually being able to see the entire universe. What a view from there. Not from a telescope that's been sent down and loaded through a, through a satellite. But having a bird's eye view of the entire universe in heaven, in your heavenly bodies. With the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the Father, you know, just everything happening. Just imagine that. Allow yourself to think on those things because he's putting it down here for us. And in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to reveal the surpassing riches of his grace for all of eternity. You know, you might want to talk about that great football touchdown pass in high school, the one you caught and ran, right? And you'll talk about it all your life, right? <laughs> Some people shaking their head. I shed those tackles. It's football season. You'll talk about it for all your life, right? You love to tell that kind of story, the victories or the things that you've experienced. But for all of eternity, you and I are going to be talking about the great majesty and kindness and love of Jesus Christ. No praise song that we sing now could even come close because he's going to continue to reveal the surpassing riches of his grace for how long? All of eternity, for all of ages to come. You see, it's going to be on full display, isn't it? Yep. Nothing veiled, nothing held back for all time and forever. Verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The basis of our salvation is grace. And, you know, this is another doctrinal place of doctrine. This is a very important doctrinal truth. And we learned as we went through the book of Galatians that there's no type of religion or good works that can make us right in the eyes of God. Yet man is addicted to religion, is addicted to good works, and is addicted to virtue signaling to try and make themselves right in their own eyes. And we can fool ourselves thinking that God's going to do that. No. By grace you have been saved through faith. God demonstrated his grace through, through Christ's sacrificial death. What is faith? Well, there's many explanations. A good explanation of faith, true faith, is belief plus trust. Belief plus trust. Not just intellectual extent, we call it head knowledge of Christian truth. Anybody can read a Bible. Most people know who Jesus was. Not an impersonal trust in any ritual or religion. Okay? Faith is belief and trust. They have to go together. You've got to have them both. And he says, For grace you have been saved, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's not a gift that you can give to yourself or anyone else. You can tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, but God is the one who gives the gift. God is the one who calls a person to salvation. Now, we know that God's the initiator, and, and I think it's important. David Guzik points this out. The essential place for you and I of prayer when it comes to evangelism. He says, since God initiates salvation, we should begin our evangelism, our witnessing to others, 
by asking God to do the initiating. That should be our prayer. Lord, I want to speak to this person, my neighbor, my loved one. I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to present the gospel to them. Will you unlock their hearts? Will you open their eyes? Will you open their eyes of understanding? Will you give them, grant them the ability to believe? That should be our prayer. And he says in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, we said you cannot work your way through. You can't say God's going to judge me on a bell-shaped curve. And if 51% of the time I did good and 49% of the time I did bad, well, I got that little 1% in my favor and God's going to look favorably on me. That's not going to work. No, I'm a good person compared to others. Or God knows that I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best. No. No. Not when it comes to your salvation. You could say some of those things after you're saved and you're struggling in your walk with the Lord for sure. But not when it comes to salvation. You see, human boasting is eliminated. Isaiah 64, 6, you've seen this, but we are all like an unclean, unclean thing. All of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Everything we think we can do for God or in his eyes, like filthy rags. We, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. One writer put it this way. The, the text gives us one reason salvation is not of works. If it was, it would be the reason why, one, one reason, a little bit comical, if you will, so that no one can boast. You know, if salvation came by works, Eternity would spawn a fraternity of rung-dropping, chest-thumping boasters, an endless line of celestial Pharisees. You know, think about it. I'm kidding. I'm going to go ahead of you, you know. That's the dog-eat-dog mentality in a spiritual sense, right? How I'm going to like it to heaven. I'm going to have the best. You, you just wait. I'm, I'm going to beat you all. It's not the worst. It's not how it works. Verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the next time we come into Ephesians, we're going we're to pick up probably right in this verse when we come into Ephesians the next time and go much deeper. But for, for the time being, we, we know that being his workmanship, as Pastor John said in his last teaching, it, it's the Greek word poema, which is where you get the English word poem. But it can mean any work of art. It's not just a poem. It could mean a statue, a painting, a song, architecture, whatever it is. He's created us for that. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Because each one of us are his works of art, when you think about it, and he is good, okay, so we're his works of art, and he is good, then he has given us what? Good works to do. And he did that even before our existence. Even before a speck of creation was created, he ordained good works for you and I to do. So if you can sing you know, the song, you can talk about the goodness of God, you can say, all my life, Lord, you've been faithful. Keep in mind that you and I are going to be singing that for all eternity. But if you can't find any encouragement in this amazing truth, if you're in that valley, in that shadow of death, if you will, 
or you don't know Christ and you're dead in your sins. And you can't find any encouragement whatsoever in the things that have been said so far, despite me, right? We'd like to pray for you. I'd like to offer a time of prayer for those. Perhaps you haven't fully trusted your life to Christ. So if you'd like to meet with me after the service, I'd be available for that. But for those of us who have, for those of us who have come to know the Lord, I want to pray that each of us will embrace our calling in the things that we do to serve Him and others. And I would like to ask that we do it with a renewed perspective. Or a perspective of the eternal. As I said when we started this great letter of the Ephesians, I'm praying that not only myself, but all of us are having a change of mind about how we take, you know, this post-COVID world is a mess. It was a mess before. It's worse. It's harder to minister in this environment. Things are really strange in a sense. You know, it's like blues and grays, and as the culture moves along, it's difficult. And you and I need to change our mindset. We need to control what we take in our hearts and minds. And we need to put in... Fill in those heavenly things. And these are great passages to do that for. To give us a renewed perspective of the eternal. Both before time began and when all of time ends and we're fully ascended into the heavenly places together in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, I pray, Lord God, that it did its thing. It had a cleansing effect on our hearts and minds, Lord God. Lord, we love you. We love the things that you do for us, Lord. We we love the fact that you hear our prayers and you answer them. We love the fact that you you comfort us in our lowest uh, times of struggle. That you work mighty works in us as, as married couples in our marriages. That you do a mighty work in our relationships with others, maybe in the workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our fellowship, Lord. You've given us a soft heart. You've given us a heart of grace and mercy, Lord God. You've placed all those things in us by the power of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we just love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. We know that you will continue if we will continue to be faithful to follow you. We know that you call us to obedience, Lord, and you equip us for it as well. So as we continue in this journey, this life that you've put us in, this time and history that you've placed us, I just ask, Lord God, that you would pour out your loving kindness, your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, in a fresh new way. We thank you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's stand for our final prayer and final psalm. Jude 124, read together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.